Welcome to the Dakota Live podcast. I'm your host, Robert Morier. The goal of this podcast is to help you better know the people behind investment decisions. We introduce you to chief investment officers, manager research professionals, sales leaders, and other important players in the industry who will help you sell in between the lines and better understand the investment sales ecosystem. If you're not familiar with Dakota and their Dakota Live content, please check out dakota.com to learn more about their services. Uh, Before we get started, I need to read a brief disclosure. This content is provided for informational purposes and should not be relied upon as recommendations or advice about investing in securities. All investments involve risk and may lose money. Dakota does not guarantee the accuracy of any of the information provided by the speaker who is not affiliated with Dakota, not a solicitation, testimonial, or an endorsement by Dakota or its affiliates. Nothing herein is intended to indicate approval, support, or recommendation of the investment advisor or its supervised persons by Dakota. Today's episode is brought to you by Dakota Marketplace. Are you tired of constantly jumping between multiple databases and channels to find the right investment opportunities? Introducing Dakota Marketplace, the comprehensive institutional and intermediary database built by fundraisers for fundraisers. With Dakota Marketplace, you'll have access to all channels and asset classes in one place, saving you time and streamlining your fundraising process. Say goodbye to the frustration of searching through multiple databases and say hello to a seamless and efficient fundraising experience. Sign up now and see the difference Dakota Marketplace can make for you. Visit dakotamarketplace.com today. I am thrilled to introduce you and our audience to Adam Landau of Sarity Partners. Uh, Before I pass it over to the team, uh, let's learn more about Adam. Adam Landau is a partner and co-market leader in the Pennsylvania office at Sarity Partners. Prior to joining Sarity, Adam served as co-chief executive officer and chief investment officer of Permit Capital Advisors, where he was responsible for formulating and implementing the firm's investment strategy. Prior to joining Permit, Adam served as managing director at McCabe Capital Managers, working there from 1997 until 2011. Adam oversaw the integration of McCabe Capital's advisory efforts. This covered a rigorous process focused primarily on the various aspects of investment due diligence. Prior to joining McCabe, Adam spent four years at Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jarrett, where he worked with both retail and institutional clients to develop asset allocation plans and construct appropriate equity and fixed income portfolios. Adam received his MBA in finance from St. Joe's University in Philadelphia and a BA in economics from Rutgers University. He holds the CAIA designation and is a member of the CFA Institute and the CFA Society of Philadelphia. Adam serves as chair of the board at A Meaningful Purpose, the charitable organization behind Reed's Organic Farm, a farm and animal sanctuary helping underserved and marginalized individuals through workforce development and educational programming. He serves as chair of the advisory board at the Field Center for Children's Policy, Practice, and Research at the University of Pennsylvania, an interdisciplinary effort of Penn Schools of Social Policy and Practice, Law, Medicine, and Nursing. He also serves on the boards of directors of Bancroft, an organization serving children and adults with developmental disabilities, Women's Way, Philadelphia's leading nonprofit dedicated to the advancement of women, girls, and gender, and racial equity, and the ESF Dream Camp Foundation. He serves on the corporate boards of Elevate Eye Care and Goddess Sports. We look forward to this informative conversation. Back to our team with the Dakota Live Call. Very impressive resume. Clearly, you're very generous as an individual with your time, with your talents, and the fact that you're here with us today. We're very grateful for you taking time out of your busy calendar 
to join us here in studio. I, I think the length of time that took just, just, means, that, <laughs> just means that I'm old, you know, more so than anything else. It's very impressive the way that you're giving back, and we're all appreciative of that and the fact that you're here. You know, we try to bring timely conversations to, to our members, to our community. Uh, I couldn't think of a more timely conversation to be had today than with Sarity. We hear Sarity's name quite a bit, uh, a lot of great growth. So we're going to dig into all that. But if you could just start high level for us, just give an overview of Sarity Partners. It'd be a great place for us to uh, begin the conversation. Yeah. And, and I'm a year old into Sarity. My firm, uh, Perma Capital Advisors, merged with Sarity Partners a year ago. Uh, Sarity was founded in 2009. I think we now have offices in 15 states uh, around the country. Uh, I have over 800 colleagues. We serve 19,000 plus clients. And uh, I think we, we advise on about $65 billion in AUM. So, wow. uh, you know, going from running a $3 billion firm to a, a, a cog in the wheel of a $65 billion firm. I think that's where we want to go next is really get into those big differences, yeah, right? exactly. So, as you said, it's been one year since the merger with Sarity and Permit. What are some of those big differences and, and key advantages of combining forces with Sarity? You know, one of the biggest differences um, is is in decision making. Uh, I was the chief investment officer, as you said, at, at Permit. I didn't have unilateral decision making authority, although I, I, you know, had obviously had a significant vote. Um, I'm now a member of a 20 plus person investment committee, so one of a broader uh, array of voices. But you know, as I said to our clients, um, you know, before the merger, giving up that level of autonomy that I had. Um, you know, for the group of people that I joined, and that was the due diligence that we did prior to the merger, you know, understanding the people within the investment committee, within the investment office, how they thought about investing and came away with so much respect for them that, you know, I said, if I'm in a room with 20 people and 19 of them think that we should be doing one thing and I think we should be doing something else, I should probably heed, you know, the, uh, you know, their voices. So decision-making has changed, you know, a, a significant number of advantages, you know, primarily capital, uh, human capital, uh, the people that we have within the organization that are now sharing ideas and contributing to our investment program uh, is is obviously significantly greater. Significantly greater. Okay. Although I think we had a great team at Permit that punched above our weight. You know, our weight now is significantly larger, and you know, uh, that's a big difference. And and frankly, the AUM, you know, going from three billion to sixty five billion, gives us the opportunity to participate in some, uh, you know, with some managers in some funds that we may not have had before. And it, it also gives us a little bit of, of leverage yeah. that we wouldn't have had before, which all sure. accrues to the benefit of our clients. Yeah. And I always thought Permit had a great reputation, investment acumen, uh, just the way that you thought about uh, structuring so many of your investments uh, and just the unique way that you would even look at it and engaging in conversation, your, your level of due diligence. I know Anna wants to get to talking about that and how it's more how it is centralized under the new structure. Yeah, I think just building off the comments that you've already made about the investment office now at Sarity, how should um, an investment salesperson think about approaching that centralized research team given the size and reach of the firm now? Well, it's interesting to, uh, to, to borrow a term from portfolio construction. I think we have a little bit of a core satellite approach. You know, there is an investment office uh, led by Chief Investment Officer Ben Pace that's based in New York. Uh, a number of the investment resources are are in New York, but just like with Permit, you know, Sarity has grown by partnering with groups all over the country, many of which had their own investment talent. So there are investment committee members and investment contributors around the country. And, you know, 
I would say for somebody who wants to kind of, you know, walk in the door at Sarity, you could do it either through New York or through one of the offices. And then we will bring it to New York and we'll go through the investment committee. We'll go through the channels. So I think, um, you know, there, there are different ways to approach it, but certainly, you know, within the local community is one way. That's great to know because we're always trying to figure out, right, what is the right way, the most appropriate way to start those conversations, right? Mm-hmm. And if there's going to be the ability to still call on the individual, yeah. the prior independent firms of a permit as a way to introduce that idea uh, and be able to bring that back to New York, right? That's, yeah. uh, that's really great for us to yeah, understand there's, it. There's know. the right way, the appropriate way, and then there's yeah. the easy way. And, and that would certainly <laughs> be the easy way. Well, can you talk a little bit more about manager selection then, right? And this might be drawing on a little bit of how you think about it from your prior experience and being independent and, and permit, uh, but also, you know, what does that mean now from, from a Sarity standpoint and thinking about manager due diligence? Yeah, I mean, we have, we have more resources um, and, and we have a little bit more structure than we had at, at, at permit. At permit, we were kind of all generalists, which I, I think worked well at, at that size firm. Um, you know, now our structure is, is a little bit more specialization, a little bit more responsibility delegation. So, uh, you know, just within the, the alternative space, we have a, a private equity group. There's a private equity head. There are people that report to the private equity head. There's a private debt group, a private debt head. There's venture capital uh, team, and there's a real estate team. And then within traditional asset classes, there are, there are teams as well. So oftentimes those teams will be where the opportunities are funneled to. They'll do a lot of the legwork. You know, they'll get to the sixth or seventh inning of the due diligence, and then they'll bring it to the investment committee okay. for ultimate decision-making. So let's, let's build on that, um, right? So that decision-making process, and you said kind of the team bringing up the investment committee. Ultimately, what is a, what is a win, right? As a salesperson, right, we, we want to understand, is it an approved list? Are there firm-wide models that now go across all 15 states that Sarity has a presence. Yeah. Just walk us through, right? Like and, the, and, and the size matter, Yeah, right? Because I, one of the things I always thought permit and gave you all a lot of credit for was the fact that you would look at a, a manager early stages, right? Mm-hmm. So this, the fact that you're now 65 billion with Sarity as you're going through that decision-making process and thinking about where it can be applied across the broader network, does your ability to work with a boutique manager, does that change? Not entirely. And, you know, one of the things that was important to us, um, you know, when we joined Surdy before we, we, we made that ultimate decision was, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, the ability to have the best of both worlds. Because to your point, I do think that we were able to find those kind of boutique types of managers who in certain spaces, you know, there, there are certain asset classes in which size and scale are, are beneficial. But there are a number of asset classes where I think being smaller, being nimble, you know, being able to participate in odd lot types of opportunities is very beneficial as well. Um, you know, we still have those, but now we just have a broader set of them. You know, a lot of our opportunities were locally sourced. I happen to, you know, see things through a prison. I think there's a lot of great investment talent in Philadelphia. But, you know, just as we were able to find managers in our backyard that someone on the other side of the country probably wouldn't have found, now there are Saturday offices in L.A. and San Francisco finding kind of managers in their backyard yeah. that become kind of part of the boutique, Great you know, uh, segment of the, of the platform. Um, so we have not lost that ability. Um, as far as, you know, your question, Tim, about what a win looks like, you're right. It is an approved list. Um, you know, a manager 
goes through the, the rigor of the due diligence process. They're added to the approved list, you know, and at that point, there's what I would call almost an onboarding process that takes place. Um, there's generally a, a call that goes out to all of the client-facing advisors yep. where the, you know, the, the, the head of the search process will explain the manager, uh, talk about the merits of the manager, maybe talk a little bit about the search, how we think they work in, you know, in portfolios. Um, the manager themselves are a component of that. They'll have the opportunity to speak to the, the breadth of the Saturday advisor platform. Um, it could be done at, at, a, at a top-down level where they could speak to, to all the advisors on calls occasionally. But they're also welcome and I think you know, encouraged to get out to individual offices to speak to the advisors. Because ultimately, you know, your, your question about a model portfolio, there are model portfolios you know, there's there's no model client, so I'm not, right. you know, necessarily yeah. a believer that model portfolios have a lot of applicability. Um, it, these are advisor-driven decisions mm-hmm. based upon what's best for their clients. Yep. You know, no two clients are the same, so no two portfolios have to be the same. Of course. Um, so I think getting out there and meeting with individual advisors is is uh, you know is, is in the best interest of a manager, particularly at the beginning. Uh, you know, so your work's uh, not done, work. right? So even if you're Going to the individual office as an idea generation, it gets sourced, it gets diligence. That just starts the next leg of the relationship, right? And making sure that you're getting in front of each of those individual offices to help educate uh, and bring to light and highlight what it is that either you all saw or the central research saw. Uh, so they're able then to articulate that and see if it's appropriate for their portfolios. Yeah, I mean, just like you know, I view our work with clients, um, you know, you don't want to assume because you're not hearing from somebody that there's not reason to reach out to them. Um, not just to be, you know, top of mind, you know, as advisors are making decisions about portfolios on an ongoing basis, you know, I think hearing from managers on an ongoing basis, you know, will sometimes stir up ideas about how to use a manager in a portfolio, the types of environments in which a manager has traditionally fared well, um, you know, giving them implementation ideas as well. That's great. That's great advice. So we know uh, Sarity is a user of alternatives. You talked about the different research teams across uh, private equity, private credit, real estate. Can you talk a little bit about how they are thinking about actually implementing alternatives across client portfolios? And that might be different across different off- offices, but just how you guys think about that generally. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. It probably is different across offices. You know, oftentimes when we talk about alternatives, we talk about client comfort level. You know, I... I I believe there's also a significant consideration with respect to advisor comfort, comfort level in, in using alternatives. I mean, we, as to your point, did permit. We use them pretty, you know, pro, prolifically. Um, you know, when we talk about alternatives, I always say um, alternatives aren't an asset class. They're not monolithic. Um, the way we think about the world in its simplest form uh, as it pertains to portfolio construction is kind of risk on, risk off. So if we're going to use an alternative, it's either replacing equities in a portfolio or it's, or it's replacing fixed income. And the ones that are replacing equities, we call directional alternatives. That tends to be private equity, venture capital, um, you know, maybe leveraged hedge funds, uh, most real estate. And then we have non-directional uh, alternatives, those that are less correlated, as you would imagine. So, um, you know, uh, hedge, relative value hedge funds, absolute return hedge funds, things that you're going to want to have in your portfolio when, you know, markets are, are choppy. And, you know, they don't share identical characteristics to bonds. They don't generally pay income. They're not generally liquid. Um, but from a, uh, providing bows to a portfolio, you know, providing diversification and correlation benefits to a portfolio, you know, that's generally how they work. So we think of it as directional alternatives, non-directional alternatives. 
How we implement them is based upon, you know, obviously the risk profile of the of the, of the investor, and also importantly the liquidity profile of, of the investor. We have investors, and it's not always directly linked to the size of the portfolio, who want to stay more liquid. And we have investors who are very, very comfortable being, you know, pre- predominantly illiquid because they're less comfortable in public markets. So. We spend a lot of time thinking about the liquidity profile of our portfolios. And with every client report, we, we put out a liquidity pie chart in there. Um, and that becomes a big part of decisions about using alternatives as well. Are you on the alternative side? Uh, we see a lot of platforms work with an outside partner like a case or an iCapital in order for lower minimums to widespread across your client base. Are you partnering with firms like that? Or is it because of your sheer size you have access to these managers? It, it's, it's both. Okay. So we are going direct oftentimes, um, but we are using, you know, groups like the ones that you mentioned to put together vehicles for our clients. And, and I should say, you know, when we speak of alternatives, that's primarily funds, but we also, and this is kind of borrowing from our permit days, mm-hmm. do a fair amount of uh, what we call private direct investments as well, okay. where we'll make individual investments into companies. Interesting, right? Yeah. That's great. Well... Now, this is where uh, we'd like to try to get a little bit more inside the, the walls of, of Sarity to understand what is the view of the world, right? You mentioned sometimes you're thinking about it from a risk-on, risk-off. Where are we today? Are we risk-on or are we risk-off? What's the current mindset right now for with Sarity? You know, for the first time in, in, in a long while, and, and, and I will say there is a Sarity view, um, you're also going to get different views, you know, to, to yep. some extent, advisor, advisor. But I think for the most part, and, and my personal view is we're, for the first time in a long while, pretty much down the middle, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I think the first thing that any of us learn in this business that, you know, actually sticks with us and makes some sense is don't fight the Fed. You know, for, for many, many years, uh, the Fed was in an easy monetary policy mm-hmm. position. Um, they were very transparent about that. Um, you know, where they were not only bringing down interest rates, but expanding the size of their balance sheet. Um, access to capital was easy, and we saw the effects that that had on capital markets. Um, and it was, it, was, it was easy to follow that trend. Um, you know, for the last 18 months, it's gone in the other direction. And they've been, they've been yeah. tightening um, monetary policy, and they've been transparent about that. You know, I think for the first time in a long while, there's probably a pretty even split, you know, with respect to not necessarily when the next move is going to be, but, but, but what it's going to be. Yeah. Um, and that can change day to day. But, you know, because there's no strong consensus as to the state of monetary policy, um, you know, I, I, I truly believe that we're kind of down the middle for the first time in, in, in quite a long while. Yeah. Yeah, we hear that quite consistently in a lot of uh, our conversations, just that cone of potential outcomes is it's really wide right now. Yeah. It's not entirely obvious which way that the markets are going to go or which way the Fed's going to go and what that influence uh, could look like. But from what you were saying before, though, you still want to be engaged in conversations, right? And I think this is something that we've been talking quite a bit about with our managers is make sure that we're consistent in our message, that we're providing with real-time information, what they're seeing out there in the marketplace. It may not always fit with your house view, and it may mm-hmm. not be exactly the idea that you're looking to pursue, but you need to know what those managers are thinking. So when you do want to apply that to a portfolio, you're aware of what positioning is. Well, and I think in this environment, you know, in particular, hearing the views of different managers becomes yeah. more valuable Great because point. there is no consensus. So certainly valuable and welcomed. Excellent. So, Adam, kind of the uh, the uh, golden question, if you will, to round out the call, which a lot of our listeners are, are always keen to know the answer to. 
or you talked about the current environment kind of down the middle of the fairway, if you will. What, what in the investment committee meeting and talking to the research analysts, what does look interesting and kind of any asset classes should our listeners have a strategy uh, reach out? Being mindful of the fact that Serity has grown, merging with a lot of offices, onboarding a lot of strategies <laughs> across different offices. So yep. the team is busy, but if there were a priority kind of coming up through year end, uh, what asset classes would those be in? Yeah, no, that's a good point. To the managers out there, there's a chance we're we're probably already using you, but yeah. uh, if not, we're always looking. You know, and and so I'll give a non-answer to your question and, and an answer. And the reason we're always looking, you know, and it's it's an important question, it's a relevant question. But when I think about our job, you know, building portfolios for clients, the truth is that the significant majority, whether it's sixty percent or seventy percent, we're always looking for good managers. You know, who are going to be good strategic long-term holds across various asset classes. And we're always looking to upgrade and we're always looking to fill gaps. You know, I, I would say the next greatest proportion is probably opportunistic, you know, investments, which goes more toward, towards your question. Managers who are doing something that's, that's opportunistic in a space that has a competitive advantage, you know, a proven advantage, either where they are now or where they came from, you know, we'll always, we'll always look at. I would say the smallest piece is probably tactical, you know, given, you know, investing into the environment. Just because the environment, you know, quickly changes and, and it's an easy way to make mistakes. But I, you know, the answer to your question in terms of from a tactical perspective, what we think is interesting, you know, we've done a lot with private debt in the last couple of years, mm-hmm. continue to think that's interesting, um, you know, with banks stepping away and, and the turmoil that we've seen in the banking industry, I think private lending and private credit becomes interesting. A lot of the private credit that we invest in is, is you know, short duration, mm-hmm. you know, Mezzanine credit, bridge loans. So in this kind of upside down interest rate environment, I think private credit is interesting. Um, real estate is something we spend a lot of time talking about. Um, you know, this is a really difficult environment to be owning real estate, and we're feeling the effects of that. You know, we have exposure to real estate that you know is 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 scary right now in terms of what's going to happen based on financing markets. But that also means the other side of that coin is that there should be some really interesting opportunities in real estate coming down the pike. And then more broadly, you know, I would say just, just the stress. I still don't think we've hit a distress cycle yet. Agreed. We may not, but, you know, we want to be prepared in advance in case one's coming. And that means not only looking at managers who are primarily distressed, but managers who have the flexibility yeah. to move in distress at, 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 right, at the right time. I mean, it seems very, very logical. I mean, we went through just a period of, of disruption in the, the banking industry. Uh, I can't imagine there's going to be less regulation. You can only anticipate there being more regulation, which does and continues to expand that opportunity set for those uh, alternative lenders, uh, yep. which are becoming a lot more mainstream and a lot uh, more options out there for you all to, to look at. Uh, and certainly those that could be opportunistic in this market. Uh, I, I agree. It should present some interesting opportunities for you and your clients. Yeah, absolutely. Adam, we cannot thank you enough for being here in studio with us. We learned a ton. There you have it, another informative discussion with the Dakota Live Call. You can find this episode and past episodes on Spotify, Apple, Google, or your favorite podcast platform. We are also available on YouTube if you prefer to watch while you listen. If you would like to catch up on past episodes, check out our website at dakota.com. Finally, if you like what you're seeing and hearing, please be sure to like, follow, and share these episodes. We welcome your feedback as well. Thank you for investing your time with Dakota. Don't say good.